0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Krampus. And this is the
1: creepy burrito.
0: The most creepy time of the year.
1: Guys, it is freaking December. What the hell, how in the hell have we been doing this podcast for seven months? I don't know. It Blows my mind. This is literally one of the longest commitments I've made in my life. Same. And it's been an adventure so far. It's been fun. Sometimes it's been stressful. Sometimes we've been down to the wire on these episodes. But it is all for the sake of giving you guys the good quality content and humor that we also look for in podcasts. We have some big ideas for the Creepy Burrito's future, and we can't wait to include the burrito family in all of them. Because, after all, we are just two broke girls that decided to uh, take a crack at this podcasting thing because we were in the middle of a pandemic and had nothing else better to do, really. Yeah, we would be like, oh, it won't
0: take that much time. We'll just talk about uh, Creepy stuff. It'll be easy peasy.
1: a little bit less easy peasy than word, it's not easy peasy <laughs> but we have fun doing it and we appreciate everybody that actually listens to us because we have a lot more listeners than we than ever we thought. thought that we, we mm-hmm. would have um some people have asked us if they could help support the podcast and we um have not created a patreon yet but you can actually support the podcast elsewhere you can find the Creepy Burrito at buymeacoffee.com creepyburrito. And for the low, low cost of $1, you can please the Burrito Overlords and support the podcast by buying us a burrito. Keep us fueled so that we can give you the best content that you deserve. <laughs> and I'll also share a link on our Facebook page, too, for easier access. And LOL, that's what she said. <laughs> So, without further ado, let's move on, shall we? Tis the season that we despise. Just kidding. But not really. Low-key, high-key, we kinda hate it. So what better way to get into the holiday spirit than to talk about all the creepy and disturbing things that we love that just so happen to have happened this time of year? And to kick off this horror day season, we have a doozy today. So sit back, kick those feet up, and take a big old bite of this stale burrito. Ooh, stale burrito. Oh yeah, stale burrito. <laughs> stale like the house that our story takes place in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In the beautiful and wealthy neighborhood of Los Feliz in Los Angeles, California, a grand 1920s Spanish Revival-style mansion sits atop a hilltop. Inside this three-story home, there's a library, four master bedrooms, three bathrooms, a tiled entrance hall, a glass conservatory, a breakfast room, which I I literally had to Google what a breakfast room is. And I think that they mean breakfast nook because I know what a breakfast nook is. I don't like you got a whole ass room for breakfast. Anyway, they have a ballroom, a bar, a three car garage, and even quarters for servants. This gorgeous relic is straight out of another era, quite literally, as the house has been sitting neglected for most of the last half century. Not, e- not, not even neglected, but completely uninhabited and frozen in time. We're talking canned goods left in the pantry, magazines stacked on the living room coffee table, a dusty 1950s television set, and closets filled with clothes. Like someone just left their house and never came back. And not only is this deserted house an eyesore, it's also one of the neighborhood's grisliest mysteries. It's one of the most notorious properties in Los Angeles and is commonly known as the Los Feliz Murder Mansion.
0: Bah, bah, da, da, da,
1: da. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we just made eye contact for that. that we was sure so... <laughs> did make eye contact. <laughs> that was so erotic. <laughs> <laughs> but why is it called that? Buckle in. In the mid-1930s, Dr. Harold Perelson had just graduated med school, where he specialized in cardiology. Several years after, he met Lillian Silver, and they later married. Both he and Lillian were first-generation immigrants and wanted to continue the American dream that their parents came to America for. So the two left New York for Southern California in pursuit of happiness. They settled in the Los Angeles area and over the next few years welcomed their three children, Judy, Joel, and Debbie. Eventually, he became a heart surgeon affiliated with a private practice in Inglewood and an assistant head of cardiology at the USC School of Medicine and was also on the surgical team of cardiology for Los Angeles County General, Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, and the Santa Fe Hospital of Los Angeles. So, the dude was quite successful. He was a frequent keynote speaker at conferences all around the country and even wrote a number of research articles for medical journals, including, this mouthful, the electrocardiogram and familial periodic paralysis. Oh, wow. Did he get a Harper Avery award for that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did he work at Grace Loan Memorial? Yeah, you
1: know, uh, ooh. <laughs> immediately when I just hear Sloan I'm just like Ugh. oh, it just hits you in the feels it hurts. Steamy. Steamy. Um, but anyway that was published in the American Heart Journal in June of 1949 and was highly regarded as one of the most respected clinical reports of the time so with this new found success came a pretty decently sized paycheck Dr. Perelson decided to splurge and look for a new home for his family Sometime in the 1950s, during their house hunt, they stumbled upon the beautiful mansion on 2475 Glendower Place in Los Feliz. They immediately fell in love with the 5,000-square-foot home and put in an offer. They purchased the home for about $60,000, which would be the equivalent to almost $650,000 in modern-day time. So, like, almost a million-dollar home. But it was well worth it for the family. They thought that they had found their dream home. They lived lavishly with frequent shopping trips and owned fancy sports cars. By 1959, 50-year-old Dr. Perelson was extremely successful with a beautiful family and no outward signs of conflict. However, their lives changed forever the night of December 6th, 1959. It was just another regular Sunday for the family. They spent time together, ate dinner together, caught up with one another, and settled in for the night. Dr. Perelson and his wife put their two youngest children to bed, Joel, who was 13 at the time, and Debbie, who was 11, while Judy got to stay up a little bit longer since she was 18. Eventually, Lillian and Jude became tired themselves and went to bed. Lillian settled in for the night with a book, while Dr. Perelson remained downstairs. It wasn't uncommon for him to stay up a little bit longer after everyone went to bed to have a drink or two. And a little while later, after Lillian had long fallen asleep, Dr. Perelson went upstairs sat in the bed next to his wife, and began to read his copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy. Now, if you don't know what this book is, the title is very misleading. Spoiler alert,
0: yeah.
1: it is 100% not a comedy. The book is pretty interesting, though. It's, uh, it talks about mortality, the afterlife, hell, purgatory, paradise, and divine justice. It's actually regarded as one of the world's greatest works of literature. So, I mean, not too... I guess strange, out of the ordinary that someone would be reading it. But anyway, he was reading the book and went to bed. And around 4.30 in the morning, he woke. And for reasons that are still unknown to this day, stood over his sleeping wife and began beating her on the skull with a freaking ball-peen hammer. Mm. Like, holy shit. He struck her so viciously in the back of the head that it rendered her unconscious before she could even wake up or scream. And according to the coroner report, he struck her so hard with the hammer that it left an inch wide hole in her skull. Ooh. He then continued to savagely hit her multiple times until he thought the job was done. But what he didn't know, that it wasn't. She was still alive and she didn't die as a result of all this blunt force trauma. Her ultimate cause of death was asphyxiation. So he literally left his fucking wife to drown in her own blood. Aww. So after leaving his wife for dead, he steadily made his way down the hall and opened the door to Judy's room. Dr. Perelson then stood over his sleeping daughter and continued his attack by bringing the hammer down on Judy's head. Luckily, she just so happened to wake up as he was bringing the hammer down and flinched, so his hit was off Mm -hmm. and it wasn't enough to render her unconscious like he fucking hit her for sure but it wasn't enough to render her unconscious so she immediately woke up and started screaming and when she realized it was her father standing over her she begged him please don't kill me to which he chillingly responded lay still keep quiet Ooh, yeah like lay still while i beat the fuck out of you (laughs) and murder you So even though she sustained a serious head injury, Judy was still able to fight her father off with all of her strength. At this point, one of the younger children, Debbie, was awakened by all of the commotion and came out of her room to investigate what the fuck was going on. And she found her father covered in blood and holding the ball-peen hammer by Judy's bedside. Dr. Perelson stopped fighting with Judy for the moment and turned his attention to Debbie and said to her, "'Go back to bed. This is a nightmare.'"
0: Um, I'm sorry, Dad, this doesn't feel like a nightmare.
1: Dad, I'm pretty fucking sure I'm awake. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, it was at this moment that Judy found a chance to escape while her father was distracted by Debbie. And her first instinct was to run down the hall to her parents' room to get help from her mom. Aww. Yeah, but, uh, unfortunately, she discovered her bludgeoned body instead. Yeah. So it was at this point that she staggered down the stairs and decided to run to a neighbor's home for help. Debbie wasn't the only one who was awakened by her sister's screams. By the time Judy reached the neighbor Marshall Ross's house, he was already awake by all the noise and was trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. He opened the door and found Judy frantically pleading for help and literally gushing blood from her skull. So he immediately pulled her inside and called the police. And, like the badass that Marshall Ross was, walked his ass straight over to the Pearlson home to see what the hell was going on. And when he entered through the front door, he found both Debbie and Joel on the first floor, terrified but unhurt. Luckily, when Dr. Pearlson told Debbie to go back to bed, she didn't listen and she went to wake up her brother instead to go hide from their father. Which, fucking A plus, Debbie. Marshall Ross promptly sent the kids out of the house and then proceeded to climb the steps to the second floor. He was venturing upstairs when he came face to face with Dr. Pearlson, who was dripping in blood and walking around in a very agitated state. Reportedly, the doctor told Marshall Ross to leave his home and not to bother him, and Marshall Ross, being not only a badass, but smart as hell, knew it was time to get the fuck out of that house. yeah. So around 5.15 a.m., the police arrived, and Judy was sent to the hospital by ambulance. Even though she survived the attack, she suffered a very serious skull fracture. And then when police got to the scene and searched the mansion, they found the body of 42-year-old Lillian Perilson in her blood-soaked bed. And lying on the floor next to her was the body of Dr. Harold Perilson, still clutching the hammer. So it was determined that sometime between after Marshall Ross left the house and prior to the police arriving, Dr. Perelson mixed a large amount of Nembutal, a powerful barbiturate and sedative, with water, and to further ensure his death, then swallowed 31 tranquilizer pills.
0: Back in the 1950s, they really loved their barbiturates. They fucking loved their barbiturates. (laughs)
1: Fucking Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Mm yikes. Yeah. So, next to Dr. Pearlson's body, police found that his copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy was sat open on his bedside table with a passage highlighted. The passage read, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward path had been lost. The highlighted passage is practically the only piece of evidence that we will ever have to explain Dr. Pearlson's state of mind that night, but whatever actually drove him to the murder is a secret that he took to the grave. However, there's been a ton of speculation as to why he did what he did. Investigators eventually looked into the family's history and found some troubling details. First and foremost, Dr. Pearlson got screwed. Like, fucking big time screwed. So, He was not only a specialist in cardiology, but he was also an injection specialist as well and had actually invented a new type of syringe for injections. It was a device that outfitted a syringe that allowed the person to inject whatever substance directly from the small glass capsule that it came in. So basically making the injection safer and less prone to contamination and was actually a pretty fucking sweet idea, even though this guy is a maximum douchebag. So Dr. Pearson was positive that this idea would be a success, so he sank pretty much all of the family's money into developing the product. I read during my research that they invested upwards of $25,000 into this thing, 7000 of that coming from Lillian's own savings. In December of 1938, Dr. Perelson filed a patent on his new device, and then sometime in 1949, he and his business partner, Edward Shustak, entered into a verbal agreement that he would help get the product going and on the market, and they both agreed to split the profits 50-50. So after working together for 11 years, their relationship came to an end when Shustack allegedly tried to steal the design and cut Harold out of the deal completely. So in 1952, Dr. Pearlson filed a complaint against Shustack and what followed was two years of legal disputes where he demanded $100,000 in damages, which in today's money would be over a million dollars. So not only did the Pearlsons invest most of their family savings into this device, but now they had all these legal fees that were adding up and putting them just further and further into debt. Dr. Pearlson ended up winning the case, but was only awarded about $24,000. Clearly nowhere near enough to recoup what they had lost. And to make matters worse... Three years later, in 1957, then-16-year-old Judy got into a car accident when crossing the intersection at Vermont and Los Feliz Boulevards, moderately injuring herself and her siblings, who were also in the car. Dr. Perelson once again headed to court to sue the other driver that was involved. He won the case, but only enough to cover the children's medical bills. Not the 50000 that he was after. Another huge blow to their financial situation. By this point, Dr. Pearson's mood had definitely darkened. It's reported that he no longer seemed as ambitious or took an interest in his work or inventing. He had even experienced a number of heart attacks, seemingly due to the financial stress that his family was under. Neighbors even remember him being hospitalized multiple times for this. But after police investigation, it came to light that these heart attacks were the result of failed suicide attempts with drugs. Allegedly, Lillian was even considering committing Dr. Pearlson to an institution for the mentally ill just prior to the murder. Furthermore, the police investigation uncovered a note in Judy's car written to her aunt that read, My family are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. So it's definitely true that the family was under massive financial burden, But they did a hell of a good job to keep others from knowing that. Even throughout these money issues, the family still continued to live extravagantly and never let up on their expensive spending habits. Friends of Judy's recount that even at the time of this horrible event, Judy was still driving a brand new sports car. It could be very well possible that Dr. Perlson was just spiraling into a depression and that it just all came to a head that night. Perhaps the decision that Lillian made to commit her husband was the catalyst for what had happened. Whatever the reason was, we'll never know. But that isn't the only mystery involved in the story. <laughs> After the night of the murder-suicide, the Perilson children were passed into the custody of their aunt and subsequently changed their last names to avoid any unwanted attention. Which, I would, I would understand yeah. that. Because the Pirelsons didn't have a will... Their Los Feliz mansion went into probate, meaning the mansion was sold, furnishings and all, at auction. And less than a year later, another couple, Emily and Julian Enriquez, bought the home in 1960. And, you know, that's where you would assume the story ends. But it gets even fucking weirder. Emily and Julian Enriquez never moved into the house and remained living in their working class neighborhood in Lincoln Heights. Instead, they used the house as a glorified storage facility and never moved their Pearlson shit out. Like, they would periodically go to the house to drop off, like, some of the shit that they wanted to store there, but it was stored amongst the Pearlson's belongings.
0: I wish I had that much money that I could just, like, flex and buy a mansion. like A million dollar mansion. I just, like, need storage (laughs) for, like, all of my fancy things. (laughs) For all of my
1: stuff and things. For all my things. So this went on for decades. Like the inside of the house was frozen in time, but like slowly decaying. The house gained a reputation for being empty and virtually untouched since the murders. Curiosity seekers and ghost hunters would flock to the property just to get a glimpse through the grimy windows of the Pearson's furniture covered in sheets. Julian passed away first, and then Emily passed away in 1994, so her son, Rudy Enriquez, inherited the home. Which, again, you would think the story ends. He fixes up the house, moves in, rents it out. Nope. Just like his fucking parents, never moves in and decides to use the place as storage. And again, never made any changes to the Pearlsons' decor. Now, Rudy was a retired music manager, so it's not like he didn't have money. And he was even approached many times by potential buyers, but he refused them all. Instead, he just let the house sit, occasionally coming around to drop off things to store at the house or to feed the stray cats that lived near the mansion. (laughs) (laughs) At least he cares about the cats. He cared about the cats. I can commend that. In uh, 2009, he actually told the Los Angeles Times... I don't know that I want to live there, or even stay there, but then insisted that it wasn't because of the home's violent legacy, stating that the only spooky thing there is me. Oh, okay, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like to think I'm pretty spooky. So for over 50 years, the Enriquez family allowed this murder mansion to basically sit and rot, and they rarely ever made repairs. The weeds swallowed up all the gardens, the lawn turned brown, the driveway cracked, and windows were broken in from intruders. Eventually, the city did make Rudy replace the stucco that had been peeled from the sides of the house in the front walkways and made him repaint the outside. But those were literally the only repairs that were ever done to the house for at least 50 years. Over the years, the neighbors did eventually take it upon themselves to help maintain the property by painting a street-side garage and even tidying up the front yard. But, of course, I mean, that's really all that they could do. The house was in such a state of disrepair that they all just assumed that it would just be a total teardown. And that is why they were all so surprised when the house went up for sale. Just like Dr. Perelson years before him, Rudy took his reasoning for why he did what he did to the grave. He passed away in 2015 and had no heirs. With no one to inherit the house from Rudy, the house went into probate, and then in 2016 was listed for sale for the first time since the Peerlsons purchased it in the mid-1950s. For the first time in over 60 years, the house was completely stripped of the Peerlsons' belongings. The house was listed as a fixer-upper, or as a development opportunity, and had an asking price of $2.75 million. Ooh! The listing also neglected to mention the homes past, but legally, they didn't have to. In California, when you're selling a house, you must disclose any deaths that occurred on the property for the last three years. And since this wasn't within the last three years, they weren't obligated to mention it. But... Then again, the mansion is a local legend, so everyone already knew what happened in the house anyway. So it's reported that tons of people came to the open house. But I can say with confidence that a majority was probably just to get a glimpse inside of the Los Feliz murder mansion. To see the shag carpet in the living room that the Pirelsons would have walked on. To view the gas refrigerator the family would have rummaged through to have their last dinner or to see the mural in the master bedroom wall that Lillian Perelson died in front of. Reportedly, only one couple came to the court to bid on the house. Civil rights attorney, true TV personality, and daughter of celebrity lawyer Gloria Aldred, Lisa Bloom, purchased the home with her husband, Braden Pollock, for $2.25 million. They apparently weren't put off by the dark history of the house and even told newspapers that they planned to renovate it and eventually move in and live there themselves. So, they promptly began an extensive remodel and tore everything down. And again, you would think that this would finally be a happy ending, but completely out of the blue, in May of 2019, the property once again was listed for sale. Apparently, Lisa Bloom and her husband wanted to expand the home, but couldn't secure the necessary building permits. And after a couple years of back and forth, they eventually decided that the mansion wasn't worth it. But the couple insists that the history of the house played no role in the decision to abandon the project. Lisa Bloom explains, after three years of efforts, we gave up. Since we'd be improving more than 50%, we'd have to bring the whole property up to code, which means tearing down the house and regrading the hills it's on. The property would be perfect for someone who wants a 5,000 square foot gutted house to fix up as they'd like, or a developer ready to tear it down, regrade the hill, and build the house of their dreams. Originally, the house was priced at $3.5 million, but it finally entered escrow, and there was a hefty price cut. And as of right now, the Los Feliz murder mansion is still on the market for $2.5 million dollars. Let's go in.
0: Halfers. <laughs> Halfers? Yeah. <laughs> Guys, buy us a coffee so that we can buy the buy mansion. A burrito. And we'll all
1: share the mansion together. Yeah, the It'll burrito like family. Burrito town
0: instead of Jonestown. <laughs> burrito town. Oh, my God. Flavor town. <laughs> Flavor town. Oh, yes. I feel like that's already trademarked, though. Yeah, it probably is. God,
1: Guy Fieri. Anyway, but the home is far from being move-in ready. In hopes to remodel the house to their liking, Lisa Bloom and her husband completely gutted the house, stripping down almost all of the walls to the studs and removing all of the flooring. Many of the original elements, like the third floor ballroom art deco style bar, has been removed without a trace, which is a fucking travesty to me, if it is sold and finally occupied, it will be the first time in over 60 years that anyone has actually lived inside of the residence. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. The Los Felice murder mansion is currently just a shell, but the dark, tragic truth of what happened on December 6th, 1959, will forever remain a shadow over Los Feliz. Neighbors, true crime experts, and ghost hunters alike are all left with Hundreds of daunting, unanswered questions. Why did Dr. Perilson do what he did that night? Was it a result of his depression? Or did he succumb to his financial burden? Whatever the case may be, why did he decide to bring other family members with him? If his hit wouldn't have been off when he brought the hammer down on Judy, would he have gone through with killing the entire family? Why would Emily and Julian Enriquez, a couple from a working-class neighborhood, purchase an incredible hillside mansion only to let it sit and rot for 50 years. Why did they spend so much money on a house that they didn't intend on living in? And if they bought the house without intending on living there themselves, why not rent it out? Did they maybe intend on living there, but just abandoned the idea? If so, why not resell the home? Was continuing to store their junk in the house worth more than the cash that they would have gotten from the sale? And surely there was a cheaper storage facility the family could have rented. If all the house was was just a place to store their belongings, why did they keep the Pirelsons stuff? Technically, they did buy the Pirelsons shit in the probate, but why keep everything? Wouldn't you want to go through the items that remained there and just keep whatever you liked and sold what you didn't? Why did they decide to keep everything, and furthermore... Not change or rearrange a single thing. When Rudy inherited the mansion, was he just used to this being his family's storage house? Did he think the home was too far gone to try to repair it? Or did he just not care? Why did he, like his parents, never move a single Pearlson item out of the home? These are just some of the questions that have kept me up while researching. All questions that no one will ever have answers to and i think we're a long way off from ever getting a happy ending to this story because it's a big big project for anyone who let alone somebody that has 2.5 million dollars to buy the home mm. you got to have like probably an extra 2.5 million hanging around somewhere to remodel the inside of it I did want to mention too, luckily, before Lisa Bloom and her husband so unsympathetically gutted the home out, a local photographer, Alexis Vaughn, was actually granted permission to go inside of the home and photograph the house before it went to market in 2016. So she was actually able to capture the inside of the house before everything was moved out. So she was able to capture like all the original furniture, the appliances, all of the other odds and ends that the Perelsons left behind. Um, you can actually go see these photos on her blog, since technically they're hers, and I can't share them on our page. Mm. But if you type into Google Alexis Vaughn, and that's V A U G H N, Las Felice, it'll pop right up, and I'll also put a link in the show notes too. But it's just fucking insane to see the house because it's just it was it literally is frozen in time but just like slowly decaying mm-hmm. it's just such a weird thing to see and then the listing for the house you can actually see online like the listing's still Ooh. active so you can go through the house but it's nothing like oh look at this house that i'll never be able to afford and like you look at all the nice houses in the area and mm-hmm. dreams of like moving there someday no you look through the pictures and it's just literally fucking studs It's like a Zillow crack house. (laughs) It's not even. It's worse. It's just just the shell of a home. It's like everything's just the studs and there's no structures. It's just studs on all of the walls. Mm. Like they left like I think some of the bathtubs – And the living room during the time was, like, a step-down living room. So, Mm -hmm. like, Lisa and her husband left that and the original fireplace. But, like, other than that... Everything else is just torn out. Right, and they left the original staircase, too, because one of the main features of the house is, like, you see this giant window, and then there's a staircase just going diagonally straight through it. Mm -hmm. Um, They left that, too. But other than that, everything's gone and just completely unrecognizable on the inside. But they did take before and after pictures of it, too. So you can see the pictures that Alexis Vaughn took of, like, all of the shit that's still inside of the house. And then you can see the before pictures before Lisa and her husband started dismantling the home. And then you can see the pictures after they did whatever they did with just all the studs. So it's, like, it's just you can see each step of the way. Did they ever... So before it became basically this family's,
0: like, storage unit... Did they have the house, like, cleaned at all? No. Or was no, there the just house blood was, everywhere?
1: No, uh, the house wasn't cleaned. I believe that, I mean, they probably took the bed out. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe they tried to clean up the blood splatter. But, I mean, we're talking, like, nineteen fifties here. So, mm. I mean, people also drove in cars without seatbelts and smoking cigarettes with their children on their laps. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much cleaning they would have done but um it's my understanding too that there's a local rumor about the house that the christmas tree and the wrapped christmas presents were still in the house from the Pearlsons as well yeah but from everything that i read in my research they were actually jewish so i think that's just a local legend that someone tried to make just it sound more grim There was a picture that you can see that there's some wrapping paper, like, left on a couch. Mm -hmm. But it's not, like, wrapped presents and there's no Christmas tree. And even Alexis Vaughn, whenever she went there, said that she didn't see any Christmas tree or wrapping paper. The Enriquez family owned the home and was storing shit in it. So who's to say that that just wasn't their wrapping paper that they just tossed on the couch? And, I mean, it's possible that maybe the Perilsons celebrated christmas or maybe gave each other christmas gifts but i from my understanding they're first generation immigrants and their parents Mm. came over being jewish and both of them both lillian and harold pierrelson were raised as jewish Mm. so why celebrate christmas being having out a christmas tree and everything yeah (laughs) right But I mean, it's possible, but then again, literally the Enriquez family just stored all of their shit with the Pearson shit. Like, there's some pictures that you can see that there was a box of SpaghettiOs stored in the house, which I don't understand why they would store their SpaghettiO box, unless it was just a box that they used to put shit in that just said SpaghettiOs on it. (laughs) But SpaghettiOs uh, came out in like the 1960s, I think, so like... After the actual murder. I like happened. how
0: this is all being based around uh, spaghetti <laughs>
1: knowledge. But they found the spaghetti box, which they can definitely tell was not the Purilsons. And then there were a few, I think. Times magazines or some sort of magazines that were left that were after 1960 as well. So obviously the Pirelsons. So literally this house was just a hodgepodge of fucking like some of the Pirelsons shit, some of the Enriquez shit, like whose shit was whose. There also started a rumor too that in between the time of Rudy's family owning the house and then him inheriting it, that... There was a couple that moved into the house and rented it out, hence the Christmas tree that was left in the presents. But all of the neighbors never reported ever seeing anybody going into that house or living there. It was just always just Emily and Julian going to drop off shit, and then years later when Rudy inherited it, him just going there to drop off shit and feeding cats.
0: I saw one piece, but I think it might have been like a fluff piece saying that the family liked to participate in Christmas because it brought like the community together. That's or what something I saw like that. too.
1: That it, but no one knows. It's yeah, just fucking speculation. Specu- yeah. Like,
0: I think it was honestly just a fluff piece to make it seem like a Christmas murder. Right.
1: And that's ooh, ooh, Christmas, Christmas murder. murder. And this is why I think that the whole, like, oh, the Christmas tree that they found and wrapped Christmas presents that Lillian had just finished wrapping, like, I think it's just somebody, they just added that to the story to make it seem more morbid. Yeah. Even though it's that's not needed. <laughs> like, it's already morbid in itself. But I think it's just from people, like, getting passed along throughout the years. It's just something that people started saying. But um, as far as paranormal stuff, I didn't really see too much because I mean no one really no lived one, there yeah, no one lives since, there yeah so no one fucking knows but back in I think around 2009 2010 when Rudy was still alive he had to get a security system installed in the house because it was obviously a tourist attraction at that point like people were going there to look inside and see all of the dead Pearlson's shit inside the neighbors even reported saying that prostitutes were showing up to the house and, like, doing their business, like, inside of the house and that people were, like, trying to get in to steal shit. Like, I know uh, it was reported, like, some of the original 1920 light fixtures that were outside of the house were stolen long Mm -hmm. ago. So, like I said, Rudy eventually had to put a security system in there to keep people out. Out. And apparently it would frequently go off or at least the the neighbors would frequently hear it go off, but I mean, Ooh, was it the, just people breaking it, in, or exactly. was it something a Christmas ghost murder, <laughs> Ooh, a Christmas Jewish ghost murder? <laughs> um, but I don't know. So, uh, and then I read another article that they were talking about the like paranormal experiences in the house, and somebody was like. So-and-so got bit by a brown recluse spider. Ooh. It's like,
0: um... That's just a regular
1: Tuesday in Pennsylvania,
0: right? Yeah, I don't think you can blame a spider biting you on paranormal. I would
1: say that's just pretty normal
0: activity. Uh, Yeah. And you should probably go to the hospital. I don't think that you can blame a ghost for a spider unless it's a ghost spider. A Christmas ghost
1: spider. A Christmas ghost Jewish spider. (laughs)
0: What I don't understand is if you were a doctor, if you wanted to kill your whole family, like, he must have had something where he hated them and wanted to hurt them. Like, that just doesn't make sense. Like, if you're a doctor, then wouldn't you... If you felt like you had to kill your family, let's just go with that, right? Mm -hmm. If you felt like you had to kill your family... You, how can you put yourself to like do it in the most brutal way possible yeah, it was pretty fucking brutal and, unless you truly fucking hate them for some reason and you can't blame a book i'm sorry you can't blame dante this comedy isn't so divine no <laughs> jesus Christ. that was a little bit too dark huh sorry go ahead
1: but yeah so that's uh that's the Los Felice murder mansion There's not really a happy ending to this, and I like to usually, I don't know, have not definitive answers, but at least some Some. questions answered, and there's no questions answered. Nobody knows. The children of the Perelson family have just always declined interviews to talk about it or anything, so they've never said anything about it and also like i said they changed their names so the whereabouts of who or where they are is not even known and of course all the neighbors talk about it like there was one neighbor who said she was friends with judy and that she heard her screaming that night and that she was supposed to stay there the next night because she was the babysitter and this and that and she said that she always felt that dr pearlson was a mild-mannered man but when something like this happens, all the neighbors want to, of course, talk about it. And they want to insert themselves into things. So who knows if that's actually true or not. But, yeah. So that's uh, that's it. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, tons of questions. A little stale, empty burrito. Oh, sad burrito. Sad burrito.
0: Well, maybe that's what the Divine Comedy is. We all just don't know why the fuck this all happened. He, we don't. He just... Did it just cause? Is this the house that uh, the first season of American Horror Story was based off of? I think so. I believe so. The murder house. Yeah. The the house it was loosely uh, based on that. But yeah. So we buy this mansion very loosely. Is Evan Peters gonna be there because I'm in. That's worth it. That's Probably worth the money. Not. I will throw money down.
1: I would throw my money away <laughs> for. <laughs> For For (laughs)
0: Amy. I would destroy my life for that, man. I would destroy my
1: life. (laughs) I would burn my house down and everything in it. That's a little dramatic. A little bit, but But, I I mean, I dig it. uh, All in. Emma, Emma Roberts.
0: And if you're all in, make sure you rate us a sweet ass review on Podchaser, Stitcher, iTunes. Rate us on your streaming apps. Or you can hit us up at The Creepy Burrito on Instagram. Facebook,
1: maybe Twitter. We'll figure it out one day, guys. One day. And uh, you can send us an email at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. And you can now buy us a burrito Ooh. at buymeacoffee.com creepyburrito. Or just go to Facebook and I'll share a link. Do it. Fuel your podcast. Come back next Wednesday
0: to get lost in that sauce with us.
1: I just got an idea. Oh, what? That we could name it Flavor City instead of Flavor Town. <laughs> Why? Because we can't name it Flavor Town because Flavor Town's taken. But it's Flavor not Flavor city. city.
0: It's only well, a, house. It be a Town either. Well, Flavor House. I guess. Who's in the house? <laughs> JC, tell me who's in the house. And on that note. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. I'm Shelby. I never said that back at the beginning. I just said that I'm Krampus.
1: <laughs> Spoiler alert, we've been talking to Krampus this whole time. <laughs>